Thank you, Jonathan. Good evening. I'd like to begin by thanking uh, Jonathan Mickey and his colleagues at Kellogg for the honour of being asked to deliver this year's Bynum Tudor Annual Lecture, and also by thanking all of you for attending, except for those of you I know. I banned my husband from coming, and I'm very, very cross that some friends have turned up. Um, <laughs> past lecturers have been such extraordinary and eminent people that I've been fluctuating between feeling flattered and a fraud, and I fear I veered very much towards the latter. But at least I can start confidently by paying tribute to a remarkable and generous man, Bynum Ellsworth Tudor, Jr., who was born in North Carolina, USA, in 1933 and died uh, not long ago in 2009. After two years in the American Army in Germany, he became a businessman and joined Reynolds Industries, where he quickly rose to top management and served in a variety of their companies. He was one of North Carolina's most distinguished business and community leaders. And in his retirement, he became interested in genealogy and history and visited Oxford to study with his wife, Joanna, every year for 14 years. He became, as Jonathan said, a great friend and benefactor of Kellogg College, culminating in his endowment of the Bynum Tudor Visiting Fellowship which I am so privileged to enjoy. The theme of these lectures was intended to be broadly to do with the interactions between business, the professions, and lifelong learning. I've been in business in the private sector for the last 11 years in both an executive and a non-executive capacity and in a variety of companies. I had a profession for some 20 years as a senior administrative civil servant in UK central government. And I can assure you I'm still learning, albeit not in any formal academic capacity. So I thought with that background, I'd tell you a little bit about those experiences and of my personal conclusions about them. I fear I must stress, especially in this place, the personal in talking of my conclusions, I am not competent to offer you any academic truths. In fact, academic truth was one of the first casualties of my working life. <laughs> After doing Quaker voluntary service for a year in Madagascar and then in France, I went to Nottingham University intending to become a social worker. By the beginning of my third year, I doubts both about my suitability for such a role, and also had an undefined wish to try to do something on a macro rather than on a, um, a level uh, that was um, more intimate. I wanted to try and change society for the better. So I took the civil service administrative class that used to be called exams for the foreign and home civil services in my final year. I'd been strongly advised by my careers advisor, my careers officer, not to do this. <laughs> she said the exams were very difficult and the competition was very fierce. She suggested, for some reason I've never really cared to explore too thoroughly, 
that I might like to consider becoming a prison governor. (laughs) Undeterred and thinking there was nothing to lose, I took the exams. I also lined up a job in the probation service just in case. The exams comprised, as I recall, a day of qualifying written exams in Birmingham, a couple of days of tests and interviews in London, and a final selection board. I'm not boasting when I say I found the process great fun and very easy. This was not at all because I was brilliant. It was because, having had hardly any experience of life and work, I saw things with the eyes of youth, in black and white, and so was able to give very decisive, well-argued answers to questions which, in reality, had no definite uh, right answer. I should add that when some years later, after working as a civil servant, I was sent to the Civil Service Commission to be one of the examiners of potential new entrants, I looked at the exam questions and tests with the horrible realisation I would not be able to answer them with any um, definite answers. I'd become too used to seeing things in black and white and grey, especially grey, many sides of every question, and to seeking compromises. My career in the civil service was not straightforward because I married a UK diplomat. I took the second major career decision of my life then, the first being to join the civil service, and that decision was that my husband's job would come first and I would follow him. I know this isn't politically correct, but I'm here to tell you the truth. (laughs) This wasn't a difficult choice because he was a much better civil servant than I was, and he loved his work much more than I did. The potential disadvantage of that decision was the need to keep applying for special leave without pay from the Development Aid Ministry, where I worked, to accompany him on postings abroad. But in fact, that potential disadvantage turned out to be a wonderful advantage because, as things turned out, his career path was mainly London-based. He was only posted abroad three times during his married life. In fact, I doubt if you will find a less posted diplomat than my husband. (laughs) Odd, since he became head of the Foreign Office, but there you are. Um, The first time he was posted was in India, and then twice in Paris. The second time in Paris he was ambassador, and I had plenty to do as the ambassador's wife, but for the other two postings, I was always, as it happened, offered government-related jobs, which offered a huge variety of experience I would never otherwise have had the opportunity to enjoy. So, in India, I worked for the British Council and then for the High Commission, in both cases on the very low wages of a locally hired employee but with a fascination of learning directly much more about the country than I could ever have learnt indirectly as a spouse. When we returned to London, I was given the British Development Aid to India desk in the Development Aid Ministry, and so I was able to approach that role with much more background knowledge than would normally have been the case In fact, much more background knowledge than I'd ever had in any job I did before in the civil service. 
We were at home for about seven years after India, which gave me the chance to move on a bit in my career. My first head of department job was dealing with educational development, which brought me into contact with some academic institutions dealing with what we then um, incorrectly called the developing world. Rather patronising, it sounds now. My second department only dealt with three countries, and they would have been very cross at being called the developing world. Uh, Each was so fraught with political minefields that they were a full-time job for about 12 people. I think I saw our minister more than any other of my colleagues in the department. The countries were Centelina, that involved endless inquiries about whether to replace their, their ship, which was then their sole means of international transport, and also whether to build an airport. Then there was Gibraltar, very tricky financing issues, as well as frequent political skirmishes with Spain. And then finally, the Falkland Islands, just after the conflict, to deal with their economic development programme. I never got to St Helena, since the trip would have taken me away for a minimum of three weeks, their communication transport problems being what they were. I didn't dare leave my other two problem children for that length of time. But I went to Gibraltar almost every month to sit on my first directorship, director on the board of the newly created and very largely HMG-financed Gibraltar Ship Repair Company. It failed, I'm sorry to say. Um, I was glad that my Indian experience uh, taught me to be very wary of the Gibraltar apes because the monkeys were jolly ferocious in India. And then I made three visits to the Falklands, walking amongst albatrosses sitting on their nests, huge flocks of Canada geese, five kinds of penguins, three sorts of seals, including the enormous elephant variety. I had to be particularly careful to give those last a wide berth because of their tendency to roll over without warning, squashing everything in their path. We were posted to Paris for the first time in 87, and I fully intended to treat the whole time as if I were at finishing school, an experience, I should add, that had never come my way in my working-class Lancashire childhood. I spent hours talking to the local butcher, cheesemonger, fishmonger, greengrocer about what to buy, how to cook and put menus together. The first time in my life, as someone who'd always worked primarily with and for men, I joined an all-female group of French and British women who wanted to improve each other's languages. As a result... As well as learning the sort of daily French which had never featured in my A-levels, I found out how to tie a headscarf, what was correct to wear when, and a lot of the kindness of women to other women. I'd done prison visiting for years in the UK, and I took that up also in Paris at Fleury-Mérangis, dealing mainly with English speakers of many nationalities and learning something of the very many differences between the French and British legal systems. Well before that first year was up, however, this rather self-indulgent life had to stop, and I was lent by the UK government to work first for the French Development Aid Ministry on a civil service exchange programme, and then, terrifyingly, 
to the French Treasury, the Tresor, to be part of a three-person secretariat, the other two were Tresor officials, to the Paris-based international conference setting up what was to become the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. This bank was to provide intergovernmental financing for the transition to market economies of the former communist countries. It was and remains the toughest job I had ever done. It was not helped by the fact that the Trésor had moved two weeks before I turned up from offices in the Louvre Palace to a mammoth, state-of-the-art new building flanking uh, the River Seine at Bercy. That area was then a semi-wilderness of old warehouses on the perimeter of Paris awaiting development. Not known for my geographical expertise, initially I found the identical corridors and lack of signage in the building more than a challenge. Every time I visited the ladies' cloakroom, which discovery of which was a feat in itself, I would waste a great deal of time wandering around seeking directions from equally bewildered Trezor staff as to the way back to my office. For some reason, which I hope was not due to aspirations of grandeur, I kept finding myself outside the minister's suite of offices and having to be sent on my correct path by a kindly clerk. The office I inhabited was meant for two, but when I turned up we were three, so I installed myself on the edge of one of the two desks and learnt that if all were present and I needed to go out, the least disruptive exit route was to crawl under the furniture. It was quite surprising for some of our visitors. The worst, however, was the blow to my professional pride. As a generalist administrator in the civil service, I was used to relying upon my oral and written English skills, as well as on teamwork with other administrators and advisors in order to take common sense recommendations for decisions. In the Tresor, my French was more or less comprehensible when I spoke, but my written French lacked any of the necessary finesse for official communications. There was a humiliating moment, one of many, when my colleagues were pressed for time and an urgent submission was needed to go to the head of the Tresor, wonderful man who's just retired, Jean-Claude Trichet, from being president of the European Bank. In the exasperation, I heard someone say, Eh bien, que Sylvia la fasse avec son petit nègre, which roughly translated means, oh well, I suppose Sylvia will have to do it in her pigeon English, uh, French. <laughs> pigeon French. <laughs> then although my colleagues were invariably polite and helpful towards me, teamwork did not feature greatly in their lives. There were no handover files, since individual knowledge meant individual power. And the last straw was that my common-sense judgments, of which I was so proud, were frequently exactly the opposite of my colleagues' views. This was only one in a series of things I found worked the opposite way round in France from what I was used to in Britain. The position of hot and cold taps, the turning of doorknobs, the placing of forks, always with their prongs downwards, so if they were silver, to show off the engraving, which was always on the back rather than the front, 
and, of course, driving on the right. All in all, it was not perhaps surprising that some of almost every day was spent having a cry behind the locked door in that lady's cloakroom, hence the need to have found it in the first place. <laughs> in time, and not least when the bank was installed in London, amazingly, luckily at the same time that my husband was posted back to the FCO, I was lent by the British government to work for the bank's French president, Jacques Attali as a deputy director of his private office. By then, I'd got used to things. I'd swallowed my pride and I'd begun to learn. I saw that sometimes what the French call la diplomatie du fait accompli, roughly translated as act first, sort out the consequences later, cut, cut through the entanglements of negotiations more effectively than searching for the elusive compromise. And of course I learnt that the world did not end if one took off at least an hour for lunch. In fact, one usually worked better afterwards. Some experiences were not only thought-provoking but much sadder. I grew up following the doctrine, later summed up succinctly by President Clinton, that it was the economy stupid which was the main force determining determining events in public life. In fact, when I went with the bank's president to visit the Yugoslav government in Belgrade only days before Slovenia opted for independence and the republic began to break up, the government assured us, and I was absolutely convinced they were right, that there was no question of breakup because the will of the people throughout Yugoslavia was to join the European Union and enjoy its economic benefits. Instead, we were quickly all to learn of the tremendous, greater power of nationalism. As wars broke out and then the Soviet Union began to disintegrate, I remember a despairing American director of the bank asking why on earth Europeans could not behave like Americans and be Chinese, Italian, Spanish, Scandinavians, but always Americans. It was the Italian director who found the answer. History, he said. <laughs> My husband was posted as UK ambassador to Paris in 96, age 49. I confidently thought he'd serve about five years there and then, since there was only one job at his level in London, would have another ambassadorial posting before he reached what was then the retirement age of 60. So I then took my third major career decision, and that was to resign from the civil service. My reasoning was that there was no point in continuing. My husband would serve about five years in Paris and would probably move on to another post abroad, and so I would just have to put up with it. So I'd be lucky enough to enjoy it. So I embarked on my role as ambassadorial wife and was pleased to meet again many of the people with whom I'd worked in the French ministries. They had either progressed to high-level governmental positions, either as functionaries or ministers in the French system, or had moved effortlessly into the French private sector, which was full of former civil servants. However, life being what it is, towards the end of the time in Paris, my husband got the London job of head of the FCO, which left me with nothing to do. 
Here comes my fourth major career decision. That was to try and enter employment in the private sector. I had no idea how to do this, especially being rather busy in Paris, so I scoured the Sunday Times employment pages for months and months, and I got more and more depressed that I couldn't even understand what a lot of the jobs were about, much less try to convince others that I could do them. Finally, I found something I thought I could do. I answered the advertisement, had three rather tough interviews, and managed to convince recruiters that I would be suitable. The job was Director General of the Food and Drink Federation, that is, the main trade body for the UK food and drink manufacturing sector, big and small. So the Pepsis, the Coca-Colas, the Nestles, as well as Dutchie Originals, Rachel's Dairies, um, some of the fun new startups. Did you know, by the way, that the food and drink is the UK's biggest manufacturing sector? Neither did I. I might add, for the benefit of those who do not believe that luck plays a part in careers, my application was only saved from the waste paper basket because the president of the Federation had been chairman of Nestlé France and I'd met him at an embassy reception. I was helped by two women in starting off in my new career. The first, like me, had made the transition from public to private, but she was head of a big financial trade body. She told me, first, do not be afraid to ask for salary increases. If I didn't ask, I wouldn't get, and no one would think I was being unreasonably pushy as they would have done in the civil service with its fixed pay bands. Secondly, she said, do not be afraid of taking taxes. Anathema to a public servant. <laughs> Since I would get very tired rushing around visiting everyone as a main part of my job, and all my key members would turn up for meetings in their chauffeur-driven cars. The second woman told me she had given my name to an executive coach who did some pro bono work and had agreed to take me on free of charge. I was completely horrified. I'd always worked things out for myself. I thought it would be both weak and a waste of time to attend executive coaching sessions. Very reluctantly, I went to meet the man. Very firmly, I told him, thank you so much. I would think over his offer. And then, full of remorse, the next day, I rang him to apologise for not being more grateful and to accept. I was beginning to get a bit scared about the job at that stage. And what a good thing I did. The finances of the Federation were in a parlous state. My head of industry members were generous with their time and assistance, but a lot of their vocabulary and ways of thinking were as foreign to me as working in the French Tresor had been. It was my coach who told me what business plans were. Seems ridiculous now I didn't know what a business plan was. And how to go about writing them. He also advised me to commission a human resources audit of my 70-plus staff. One of my members lent me an HR director about to return from maternity leave to do this. He gave me implicit permission to take on hard tasks such as increasing membership fees by 10%. 
and um, changing the rules so that they were completely transparent. Also raising money from the top companies to refurbish the very decrepit office building in Covent Garden. My instincts told me these things were right, but at one stage I feared I was going to cause the Federation to fold in my very first year. He encouraged me to call the bluff of the doubters. He was non-judgmental and on my side. And I saw him about half a dozen times in my first year, and then only about the same number in my remaining four years in the job. But I always came away with one new idea and with renewed energy. And as my experience in the French Tresor and the bank had shown, I learnt to be humbler and more open to the ideas of others. Soon after I started this new executive career, non-executive opportunities began to arise. They all came directly or indirectly from people I'd known in France. I fear I am one of these people that headhunters despair about because I have never, ever got a job through a headhunter. <laughs> um, I wish I had in many respects, but it just never happened that way. So all of my jobs came directly or indirectly through networking and contacts. The first one was to sit on the board of the oldest French manufacturing company, Saint-Gobain. The company was famous for its glassworks, and indeed it had created the Glaze Gallery for Louis XIV at Versailles. By the time I joined it, it had diversified into building materials of all types. I remember being sure this was a wonderful opportunity in theory, but wondering if in practice I would ever be enthusiastic about widgets. But I needn't have worried. I discovered a passion which remains with me, if not for widgets, for all the problems that go with them. The Trezor experience also proved useful for that board because absolutely everything, with no concessions made, was done in French. A colleague on the board was president of the supermarket chain, Carrefour. He and I were great foodies, and all our conversations were about food and what he bought and how he bought it and so on. I'd become known, uh, I hope not infamously so, in Paris when we were at the embassy for only serving British ingredients or recipes for our entertainment of some 12 to 14,000 people a year. And he knew I also chaired the non-departmental public body, Food from Britain, which existed to promote UK food and drink exports. On that basis, he asked me to join his board. This was a huge learning experience in two ways. The first was in understanding something of the retail world. The second was in understanding something about boardroom politics. After about two years, he was forced to resign, and since I did not like the organisational or the management system that the new chairman established, I decided to go as well. It's awful when I decide that I would really rather like to go from a board because I'm usually the only woman and their statistics drop <laughs> immediately. So they're in despair <laughs> for that reason only. Uh, being back to only one non-executive position was in some ways a relief since I was still working full-time at the Federation. However, with my 
husband's retirement approaching and the Federation by now established on a, a very sound financial and reputational footing, I decided to try to set up a non-executive portfolio career rather than continuing in full-time executive work. Again, links with France came to my aid. We had a long-standing French friend who worked for L'Oréal in Paris. He told me that L'Oréal's vice chairman in the UK was a former UK food retailer and was sure he'd be a help to me in my job at the Federation. And sure enough, only many a lunch, this kind man proved to be a great source of advice and practical help. During my fourth year at the Federation, I confessed to him that I hoped to move on, but would really, ideally, like to find something that would give me an office and a PA to look after all of my life. He told me he was about to retire and offered me his job. <laughs> this was about to be slimmed down uh, to two days a week, dealing mainly with corporate affairs, and I started that in September 2005 as vice chairman and became chairman earlier this year. Then not long after I started that, I was offered a non-executive directorship of a newly formed merger of the French telecommunications company Alcatel and its American counterpart, Lucent. That came about through the former president of Carrefour, who was now a senior non-executive director of Alcatel-Lucent. L'Oréal allowed me to take that on, and so began a rocky 18 months, at the end of which Alcatel Lucent's French president and its American CEO, CEO uh, both, um, in quotation marks, resigned. The lesson I learnt from this is that it's much harder to merge companies than for one to take another over. At least in the latter case, you know who's boss. There followed a thorough, speedy research replacements in which I was greatly involved as member of the Compensation and Governance Committees, and this resulted in what has proved to be an ideal new combination of an American-speaking French businessman as chairman and a French and English-speaking Dutch national as CEO. But about the same time as I joined Alcatel-Lucent, I was asked again by a former fellow director of my first board, Saint-Gobain, to become a non-executive director of Lazard, the merchant bank, which had just been floated as a global public company with headquarters in New York. At the interview, when they had told me all about this and I had asked some, I hope, um, sensible questions, I said to them, would you mind if I asked you why on earth you thought of me for this uh, position? I was told by the American interviewers that when the French had proposed a Brit, they thought there must be something going for me. <laughs> Once again, a crisis brought about by the sudden death of Lazard's president and chief executive, Bruce Wastein. Um together with my joint role in finding his successor, greatly deepened my knowledge of the business. In fact, my advice when I speak to women who are starting on portfolio careers as to what to do is, one, 
do your homework, your due diligence, otherwise you can't ask any questions. Um, two, hope for a crisis. Because it's only when there's a crisis you begin to have even a clue as to what is going on. <laughs> so, uh, from that time, my non-executive portfolios remained as uh, chairman of L'Oréal UK, board member of Saint-Gobain, Alcatel-Lucent, Lazard, and also various types of voluntary work. And then, as Jonathan mentioned, thanks to an invitation from Kellogg College, I've got the fascinating experience of serving on the Commission on Ownership, uh, funded mainly by the Cooperative Society, and finding out about that was an education in itself. And that has been uh, a wonderful learning experience, and I'm looking forward to seeing what we all think about it when the report is published. I often wonder how I got to this point and why I wasn't more fearful of taking on these various posts, particularly in the private sector. I can't rule out good fortune as the answer to the first part of the question, but it also highlights the power of networking, something, of course, men have always known through their clubs, uh, through their, their dining arrangements and so on. Um, it builds up trust, and it means it's quite often an entree into opportunities that would not otherwise come your way. However, it's my professional background that answers the second part of the question, which was, why was I not more fearful? As a generalist administrator in my generation... I'd never known much, if anything, at first, about any of the issues with which I dealt. My training and my experience was to seek out the expertise of others, to work out the best possible answers to problems in those circumstances, and to use common sense as my guide. This sort of decision-making is terribly similar to what non-executives have to do on boards. In addition, I've been helped to learn by things going wrong. As I said, the crisis teaches you things you would never be able to know otherwise. This approach to board membership of the, the amateur going in as a non-exec has found less favour in the UK of late, but I stand by it. Of course, you need some people on the board, apart from the executive members of the board, who know about the business being dealt with. But I think a board is well served by having independent directors who are obliged, they've no choice, to look at issues from standpoints other than those involving in-depth knowledge of the sector concerned. After all, knowledge of the sector concerned is what the executives have. Surely the non-executives should bring something else to the table. So that's the first of the personal conclusions I promised you at the start of this speech. The second is that it's important to work out your priorities. The best decision I ever made 
was to follow my husband's career and see what happened, rather than putting my career first. That wouldn't work for everyone, but for me, it opened up a huge variety of experiences and choices from which I've been lucky enough to benefit. The third and last conclusion is to aim high. This conclusion has gained fame recently with the American political slogan, Yes, We Can. But I prefer the older Robert Browning version in his poem, Andrea del Santo, the faultless painter, of, Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp. What's a heaven for? Thank you for listening to me. And thank you also to Mr. Bynum Ellsworth Tudor Jr. for giving me yet another wonderful learning and development opportunity. Thank you.